Welcome back to Let's Talk About Women, a podcast where we talk about women's mental health across the reproductive lifespan. My name is Franziska Weinmar and I'm a doctoral candidate of the International Research Training Group 2804. And with this podcast, we want to share insights from interdisciplinary research on women's mental health. Today we are hosting Professor Sarah Metnick, a cognitive neuroscientist at the University of California, Irvine, who is currently on a research stay here with us in Tübingen. And in her research, Sarah focuses on sleep and the autonomic nervous system while trying to understand the brain and to discover methods for boosting our cognition, for example, by napping, stimulating the brain with electricity, sound and light, as well as pharmacology. Also, and I'm very excited to hear more about this later on, Sarah is investigating how the menstrual cycle and aging affects the brain. And besides, she's the author of two popular scientific books, Take a Nap and Change Your Life, and The Hidden Power of the Downstage, Downstate, and we will have a link to this book in our show notes too. Now, I'm very happy to have you here with us today. And Thanks so much for having me. <laughs> and I'm excited about what we can learn and apply from the scientific knowledge which you will share with us. So, Sarah, in your research, you focus on so-called biorhythms and how we can use them as indicators for our health, emotion and cognition and also to optimize our well-being. And before we move to the part where you tell us how we can use these natural rhythms to our advantage, can you maybe first of all explain to us what a biorhythm is? Sure. Um, so thank you very much for asking me on the podcast. And, uh, you know, biorhythms are predictable patterns in all different sorts of physiological states where you have, you know, in, in your heart rate, you have a biorhythm where you have an increase in heart rate and then a decrease in heart rate. And um, inhaling, you have an increase in inhalation and a decrease in inhalation. These are rhythms, but you also have rhythms to your metabolism. You have times where you have high levels of metabolism and then low levels of metabolism. Um, for, you know, activity levels, you have periods where you have high levels of activity and then low levels of activity followed by another high level of activity, right? These are rhythmic, um, meaning that they have two sides mm -hmm. with one side being this um, sort of um, active state that is very, it uses a lot of resources where you go out and you, all the verbs, right, of activation and exploration and you're out there doing things. And then that's followed by what we call the down state, which is a period where you have to restore all of those resources, mm -hmm. um, repair tissues that maybe were overly worked during the upstate. Um, and, you know, protein synthesis is also during this downstate period. And it's followed by the next upstate, right? So you need to have both this active period, but then you need to have this following downstate period, which is the restorative period. Very nice. Yeah. And I think there are many different examples, too, of these rhythms and the rhythms probably apply to many things in life. Um, but this is also what I want to tap into because you've written the book and talk about these power of the downstates. Uh, what kind of a power can we find in these downstates? You, you talked a little bit about that 
there are some protein synthesis, for example, during the downstate, but what is actually the power of that? Right. So when you're in your active state, the up state, you are using a lot of glucose, you're using a lot of um, proteins, you're using all the resources that your brain is making in order to give you energy. And what happens in the downstate, why it's very powerful, is that this is where you're basically restoring all that work and that you're creating the nutrients and the proteins that you will then need again for the next time you're awake and active. Um, and so we live in a society that causes us to have a lot of pressure and a lot of stress and a lot of um, ways to exert energy. Um, and that means that we actually need to have this period of downstate period of time to restore all of that energy. Um, and that's part of what's very important for sleep is that it's during this time where you're offline, that you're not, you know, your brain isn't processing information, it isn't taking in any information, you're not eating, you're not attending to anything, you're just in a kind of a mini torpor state really. And that's the only time that your brain can really be creating the glycogen or you know, creating the glucose or really manufacturing the resources that you need. So we really need these down states in order to have our up states exactly. effectively again. Yeah, I think about it as a wave. Um, and when you think about the wave that crashes on, on the shore, um, the wave always has a big crashing period, which is that you know, excitatory activation state. And then it has a drawing in period mm -hmm. where it has to develop and, 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 and grow the energy that it needs mm -hmm. for the next crashing mm -hmm. wave. You can't imagine a wave that just crashes and crashes and crashes and crashes without that drawing mm -hmm. in period. Mm -hmm. And that's what the downstate is. It's the other half of the cycle that allows you to be active. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I guess the, the The visual image of this wave is very beautiful. Yeah, um, and also you said that uh, on different levels we experience these up and down states. So we have them, for example, for the glucose, for the meta meta metabolism, but um, also I guess for hormones and on the neural level too. Right, and you know there's studies that talk about glycogen as being important for muscles, but also glycogen is important for the brain as well, and, and all of these kind of, you know, the building blocks of this energy, um, a lot of this stuff requires to have specifically time away from being active and also during sleep. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and uh, the next question that I would have on, the, on this, um, on this, yeah, on this topic would be, how can we then actually use these biorhythms, including the down states, to our advantage that is how can we use them and the knowledge about them to support our well-being our health um, but also to optimize maybe our cognitive functions or emotional abilities yeah i mean that's really what the power of the downstate book is about is is looking at um You know, it first really takes a look at the autonomic nervous system, which has these two different sides of the sympathetic system, which is this very stress responsive, active when you're awake. And then there's the parasympathetic system, which is very restorative and tries to sort of do a lot of the repair work. Um, 
that is needed for you to be, again, able to handle a stressful day? Um, and so how do we work with the autonomic nervous system to make sure we have more parasympathetic um, activation and reduction of the stress response? Um, and then you can look at sleep and say, well, one big time that you have a really big um, sort of um, increase in that parasympathetic restorative system is during sleep. Um, specifically during the first few hours of sleep where you have this slow-wave sleep. Um, and slow-wave sleep, you see really big increases in vagal activity, in, in parasympathetic activity, um, and you know your heart rate slows down, your breathing slows down, your metabolism slows down, your temp body temperature cools, um, the flow of blood in your brain s slows down. And all of this is very restorative um, mm -hmm. because it takes a lot of energy. It's very stressful to have you know, you know, your body in high temperature and able to react um, high cortisol levels uh, to the day that you can react to anything. And so what's nice about sleep is that it's a very safe period for the body to turn off the sympathetic mm -hmm. nervous system and turn on the parasympathetic system. So one of the ways to really... Um, activate the downstate is by getting to sleep early um, mm -hmm. and falling yeah. asleep, you know, like at 10 p.m. instead of at 1 a.m. Um, is really essential because sleep um, is not all the same across the night. You actually have um, one type of sleep in the first part of the night and you have another type of sleep that is called REM sleep and that's in the second part of the night. Um, and it's not really just determined by when you it's not just, you know, that if I fall asleep at 1 a.m. and I sleep till 9 a.m., I'm mm -hmm. going to have the same sleep as if I fall asleep at 10 p.m. and wake up at 7 a.m. Um, so, Interesting. Yeah, oh, okay. because you have a circadian rhythm that is, you know, an internal clock, and it's driving the appearance of REM sleep. So REM sleep is going to appear at a specific time of day, um, and if you go to sleep too late at night you are going to have REM sleep when you actually want to be having slow-wave sleep. So you have to go to sleep earlier mm -hmm. in order to make sure you get enough slow-wave sleep before REM sleep happens. Because the slow-wave sleep also helps me to use the down states and the restorative processes. So Slow-wave sleep is really where the most restorative sleep occurs. That's where you get you know, the increases in growth hormone and you have reductions in... Um, cortisol and you have all of the big changes, mm -hmm. physiological changes that are the most restorative happens during slow wave sleep. That is, if I want to make use of this knowledge that we just talked about is that I would apply this in a way that I would say, okay, maybe I would need more, I would want to get more power of my down states and then I, one approach could be to get to bed earlier and to get more of that slow wave sleep and then um Yeah, let my body work, basically what it does best, yeah. in order to then restore and wake up well energized again yeah. in the morning. Yeah. And that would help me also with my, with my well-being, with my health in yeah. the end. And the issue there is that it's not, it's not trivial mm -hmm. to get to sleep at 10 p.m. Like if, if, mm -hmm. you know, if I could just say, just get to sleep at 10 p.m. Yeah. and then everyone would do it and it would be easy, then 
we'd all probably be maybe a little healthier. (laughs) But it's actually quite difficult to to get to sleep by 10 p.m. for most people. The idea of 10 p.m. is sort of a joke. You know, they they want to, it's finally the time that they have to watch all the movies that they want to watch or stay up and, Mm. you know, who knows what people are doing. And they're just, it's, what is the word? It's it's um, is it called revenge procrastination? It's something like that. Um, where people have been giving all day long. They've been giving to other people, right? They've been giving to their children. They've been giving to their boss. They've been doing all these things for other people. And then that middle of the night time is their time. And so they yeah. want to just spend it doing what they want to do. And nobody thinks, oh, what I should be spending it doing for me is actually getting to sleep. Right? That's yeah, not, yeah, that's of course, not yeah, on yeah. people's minds. That would be then the second, the second step, the practicability of this knowledge. But I think sometimes even just knowing what it can do to you or do for you um, might be the first step to sometimes say like maybe I should go to bed earlier and that helps me. Yeah, and how much better you feel. And then, then, you know, hopefully feeling good is what people's goal is. Yeah. Yeah, very nice. Um, I would now like to uh, take a closer look at uh, the female population. And for the sake of this conversation, I would from now on refer to these individuals who have female reproductive organs and experience female-specific hormonal transition phases as women. And what is unique to women is that on top of the other biorhythms that we all experience and um, we just also tapped into is that they experience other hormonal biorhythms such as the menstrual cycle and to get everyone listening right now on the same level could you first of all briefly explain what the menstrual cycle is and also what it is maybe also regarding up and down states Mm -hmm. Um, yeah so the menstrual cycle is a monthly transition through different um, sex hormone phases basically where you have in during menses where people have their period then it's a time where you have very low hormones and then you move into a period called the um, late follic so this is the follicular period and then in the late and then after like a week of the menses then you have basically a week of your late follicular period where you have a spike in progesterone right before you ovulate and then the week after that, we would call the mid-luteal, where you have greater amounts of progesterone and also some estrogen. And then at the final week, you have this falling um, period where all of the sex hormones are basically transitioning from high to low, um, which is also the time where women get the premenstrual symptoms um, because of, you know, potentially because these sex hormones are really creating a big change in the physiology and that that may make them more vulnerable Mm -hmm. to different kinds of uh, PMS symptoms. Very beautiful and almost a perfect transition now because besides these hormone fluctuations, I wanted to ask if the rhythms of the menstrual cycle um, are reflected on other systems, functions or levels um, and if we see other functions or levels change along the menstrual cycle. I mean, there definitely are, so first of all, you know, one of the things that, you know, is, is, is curious is definitely sex hormones make a big effect on your rhythms, um, specifically when you look at animal research and you have animals where you're able to control for the different levels of sex hormones, you can see changes to metabolism and heart rate and all sorts of different effects on the physiology because the 
receptors for these sex hormones are all over the brain and they interact with many different systems. Um, and then the question is, okay, so that's all the you know animal data that shows us kind of the physiology and the neuroscience. Um, and then the question then becomes, is it the same in humans? And I think that's when things become more complicated. And it's difficult to necessarily make the one-to-one -one correspondence between the results that we see in, say, rodent models to the results that we see in humans. Exactly. Mm -hmm. um, so I look at sleep. Um, and we just recently um, comp are completing a study where we have women coming in um, to the sleep lab and we have them sleeping in those four different phases of their cycle, you know, when they have low hormone levels, high estrogen levels, high progesterone and estrogen, or when their hormones are falling. Um, and we have them sleep in the sleep lab and... Um, we do a lot of cognitive testing on them to see does their cognitive change, does their cognitive performance change, does their sleep change. And interestingly, and we also look at mood um, and sort of emotional states during these times. And interestingly, we don't really see a big effect of these changes across these women. Um, these are women who are um, healthy and young, um, up to, I think, 35. Um, 18 to 35, and they have regular cycles. They're not on any um, birth control, and they do not have um, high levels of PMS. They're not. They don't have severe PMS syndromes. Um, so they're sort of, you know, about 90% of women fall into that category. <clears throat> um, well, actually, many of them are taking birth control, but but 90% of women fall into the category of not having high. PMS syndromes in, in America. Um, so I think it's, it is sort of representative of women in general. So then when we look at their sleep, we actually haven't found a big effect of um, the different phases of the menstrual cycle on any of the measures that we have of sleep. Um, we've looked at the total amount of sleep that they're getting. We looked at how, you know, their sleep quality. We've also looked at their time in different sleep stages. And so far, we haven't seen any differences. Um, and sometimes, you know, there are some studies that <clears throat> have also not shown any differences. And then there are some studies that have shown differences. So, and sometimes it's because they have small sample sizes or sometimes because they use between subject samples. Um, so in our study, we have not really seen a big effect of the menstrual cycle itself on sleep. But also not, as you were saying before, um, also you didn't find an effect on mood during the menstrual second. I think that's, this is also um, a great finding for your study because often um, the menstrual cycle and particularly the time before the menses is considered as a vulnerable, a vulnerable phase and reflected in mood changes. And it's almost sometimes considered as common knowledge that women are more moody maybe during this phase. And I think this is so yeah, interesting and surprising maybe, um, first of all, to find this in the study. And I think it's a, also it's a described a very beautiful study design where you test the same woman in different faces and not different women in different faces, which makes a difference because maybe the woman 
yeah, experiences different transitions during the same uh, cycle. And um, I, so I just want to, to highlight maybe this finding again so that you did not find a direct impact of the psychophases on mood and also not a direct impact of psychophase on sleep. Mm. But if I understood the study correctly, um, you found an interaction that is, instead of affecting mood directly, the menstrual cycle could influence mood um, through sleep is that correct and could you maybe elaborate how this could be yeah so one of the things that's pretty standard is when you have a bad night of sleep you don't have a good mood the next day right that's yeah that's i think sort we of, can agree on that yeah, i think most people <laughs> you feel that way is i mean there are some people who when they ha have a bad night of sleep they actually get really hyper and positive but i think the majority mm. of people actually do experience you know a bad day. Um, and so that's not the surprising thing. But what was surprising was that, um, that so, so sleep is protective of mood, but it's specifically mm -hmm. protective of mood during the premenses or, or during the menses period, during that kind of perimenses period, is that when you've had good sleep, you don't have any mood changes um, during your menses. But when you've had bad sleep, that's when you actually see these, mens uh, these uh, mood changes during mm -hmm. menses, meaning that Usually sleep is pretty protective, but if we are vulnerable during our menses, it's because we've had the bad sleep. So that also means that it's, it introduces a potential intervention there of, mm -hmm. you know, it's not just, oh gosh, my period is starting and, you know, what are, what are all the things I want to be eating or whatever all the stereotypes are. It's, okay, my period is starting what should I do to make my sleep the best it can possibly be or be ready for exactly. a potential mm -hmm. bad sleep so that I can then have, you know, you know, make sure that my days are th as good as they can be. Yeah. yeah, that's very beautiful. And I think um, considering sleep as this mood buffer during menses is something that is, I think, very exciting. And maybe we have to shift that perspective on that too. And also to just consider maybe... It's exactly that during uh, the, the, the time of the menses, sleep can be way more important and can also affect then our mood in the end because sleep affects our mood. Um, I would also like to ask you, do you think we have to change our perspective on menstrual cycle and also regarding mood disorders during the menstrual cycle? If we have considered to the menstrual cycle to influence mood, and you found in your study at least, it's not that simple, it's not that direct. Maybe we have to change the perspective on that too? Yeah, I'm all for changing that narrative about um, that women are um, somehow weaker during this time where they have this change in um, hormones. I think that, you know, historically, this has been a strong argument um, that the menstrual cycle is what makes women unable to be in leadership positions and run countries or run businesses, right? That, that, or be in military, right? That there's a, a very strong argument that, well, how can I possibly count on this woman if, she, you know, she's going to have her periods at some point and maybe she's not going to, mm -hmm. you know, have the right mind or be too emotional or not be able to make good decisions. And this is, you know, historically what, what has always been said about women um, and that their brains are smaller and, you know, along with all the other things that are said about women. Um, but specifically, it's the menstrual cycle that has been blamed. So if we find, indeed, that um, 
women are able to, you know, yes, there's a lot of fluctuations. Yes, they definitely have changes in cycle. And yes, there may be some um, vulnerabilities during those times, but they're really not that bad, right? And, the, and, and that maybe there are some women who are more vulnerable to it and that we need to be paying attention to, you know, to those women who are more vulnerable and more sensitive to changes in their uh, menstrual cycle. But for the majority of women who are not suffering from severe PMS, they actually, you know, that th there's women who are now winning, winning marathons, you know, on the day that they have their period, which is not what you would have thought before, right? That, you know, women are actually very strong and very powerful and very able to compensate for whatever sex hormone fluctuations happen. And is that also exactly what we have been referring to in the beginning of the conversation to make use of that downstate of again, right? During, even during the menstrual cycle to um, take that knowledge and just use it to, to the advantage and, and maybe also then consider, okay, maybe I will have that time when my hormones are low, when maybe I, I, my sleep can affect the mood. So then I just make time for more sleep or adjust a little bit in order to use the downstate too? Yeah, I think that that's exactly the point. And, I, and, you know, when I started doing this research, I remember I was at a sleep conference, and the reason why I wanted to start studying women and menstrual cycle and menopause was because I was at, you know, at a bar talking to a, uh, another sleep researcher, the Italian guy who studied menopause and studied sex hormones in women. And his way of talking about it was that it was a disease, that, you know, it's a disease right. model, that there's okay. something, it's mm -hmm. like, it's, that there's something wrong, right? That, that this is, you know, when women get their menses, this is a problem. And when women get, you know, menopause, this is a problem. And it's, it's a mental health problem. It's a physiological problem. It's a, it's, it's a disease, it's the way medicine looks at things, right? Mm -hmm. And I thought that is just so weird, <laughs> right? Because this is the most natural thing mm -hmm. that happens to every woman with a uterus, right? So here we are um, considering this a disease when it actually is really powerful that we have these changes, right? And that maybe it makes us actually really strong to have these changes and very flexible and adaptive. Um, and that can't we be kind of changing that narrative to be curious about how are women so awesome um, when they have all these changes, you know, and not and not despite these changes, but because of these changes. Exactly, right? yeah. Um, so I definitely think that that conversation um, is just starting. Yeah, I think so too. I think um, probably uh, more and more of this science people try to apply the science and also say that you can live in sync with your cycle yeah and because you will have phases where you are very active you had you have a lot of energy maybe during this first phase of the cycle up until then ovulation and then after ovulation a phase begins in the menstrual cycle where you might feel more calm because progesterone's rising if i put it now very simple then maybe i can make use of this stage for other things maybe so it, could that be something that we might want to develop further for women during the menstrual cycle to use the scientific knowledge and not only how to um, boost our health and well-being while trying to sleep maybe more during one phase or the other but also to make use of the hormone stages that we have during the cycle and yeah. use them to live in sync yeah and i think 
you know, a lot of women don't even know when their periods are going to happen, right? So even, you know, and, and that's, and a lot of cultures don't even talk about the period, right? So, so, the, so there's so many levels of conversation we could have about this. I think it's amazing to say, uh, okay, I have, this is my week, you know, for, for me personally, I get my period and, you know, last night I got my period and the weeks, you know, the days leading up to this, I really was sleeping badly. And I sort of got out of the rhythm of, of, of um, tracking my period. And then when I got my period, I'm like, oh my God, that's why. And I totally <laughs> had forgotten to like track it and make sure that, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I thought I, that's so stupid because I was getting really troubled by why I'm having bad mood and bad sleep and all this stuff. And suddenly I thought, oh, you know, if I had just like remembered that this is what's coming, you know, even me who studies it, I also don't even always pay attention to this stuff because I kind of don't want to. I want to just move on and not think about it. But it's actually a benefit to think about it, right? For sure. That, you know, if you want to take care of yourself, learning about when you might need more sleep is really important, right? Because then you don't spend those days mm-hmm. feeling terrible or, you know, not understanding what's wrong with you. And and then when you have opportunities yeah. for, oh, this is the week where I feel really powerful or, you know, this is the week where I have, you know, all these kind of sexual desires or all, mm-hmm. any of those kind of things. Well, that's also good to know, right? Like, why am I thinking these things? Oh, it's because of my biology. That's really mm-hmm. cool. Yeah, I think... There, the um, knowledge can have also a lot of power and the information. And maybe I don't have to really track it um, every day and I don't have to be a, a researcher in this field, right? Because if I would just know that there are different phases of my cycle, I can keep track of them while or maybe looking at the calendar or just being aware of what a cycle is. And unfortunately, in many schools still... At least I didn't learn about the menstrual cycle in school and I just learned it by doing research and I think this shouldn't happen. So I can just hope that we can in the future get more awareness of the menstrual cycle so that we allow young girls and and women and also later on with all the different phases that women undergo throughout her lifespan to just be aware and then don't blame themselves for not feeling well but maybe just understand okay maybe this is because of my biology and it's not bad and it's we're not judging it but we just are aware of it and we we try to make use of that knowledge right yeah and you know there's so much shame around the period Mm. um i have a 13 year old daughter and it's just you know she she understands how ridiculous it is that there's shame around her period because she knows this is just what every female experiences, but she also can't not feel it, right? She also can't not be saddled with the stress Mm -hmm. of this experience. And so, yeah, the idea of living in a world where it's like everyone understands it, it's not a female Mm -hmm. thing, that boys grow up not thinking, I don't need to know about that, like why... Well, maybe we could just think about this as a human experience, right? And 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 and, and if we take it on in that way, mm-hmm. we can be curious about it and not have it be this super super gross thing that people are ostracized for. For sure, and I think it's it's definitely um, interesting enough, and I'm I'm getting very excited. But also, I know it's maybe a very subjective perspective, but it's interesting enough for everyone to know and learn about it, right? So. Yeah, uh, I would want to make a transition now and, and um, introduce now a different um, phase because besides menstrual cycle, women experience other hormonal transition periods that follow this up and down state pattern. 
And whereas we talked about the menstrual cycle, that is something women experience at the monthly scale, the transition to menopause is something that happens at a larger scale over the course of years. And here we define menopause as the cessation of the menstruation, but this is also not just happening overnight. And uh, women go through a phase of up to five to ten years even, in which their hormones fluctuate a lot, uh, the menstrual cycle is getting irregular, and due to this, um, a woman can experience some menopause-related symptoms, some of which can be increased experience of mood symptoms or other mental health problems. And that is also why we consider this hormonal transition phase as a window of vulnerability. And as we've talked about sleep being this protective buffer and mood during the menstrual cycle, how do you know or do you know about hormone fluctuations influencing sleep during the transition to menopause? Yeah, so, I mean, one of the big changes, one of the big symptoms of menopause for many women is hot flashes or hot mm -hmm. flashes, however you say it. And, um, and these hot flashes are highly related to poor sleep because, they, you know, it, in the middle of the night, you have this sudden onset of, like, mm -hmm. fire burning inside you, and you have a lot of women reporting sleep loss from that period. Um, so that by itself is a major contributor to poor sleep. And then there are, you know, the levels of mood changes that you also see. Those can be changing sleep and that can be changing, but it's it's really not well disentangled. You know, if you if you realize, you know, even even knowing are the women who are experiencing more hot flashes, are they the women who are also experiencing more menopausal mood symptoms? Mm -hmm. We don't really know that. Right. Uh -huh. So yeah. so trying to look at all these different factors, sleep is uh, usually more examined via self-report. How mm -hmm. well are you sleeping? These kind of questionnaires. But very rarely is it actually that you're getting women at this age into the sleep lab and looking at their sleep in terms of their EEG or their ECG, their autonomic nervous system. Are their autonomic nervous systems able to go into that downstate that we talked about? If they're having hot flashes, it's a very high sympathetic arousal state. So most of the time, those women are having less downstate restorative sleep than women who are not having hot mm -hmm. flashes. So when the hot flash occurs, that's going to have a big impact on the sleep. So, you know, getting, and, and, and we have been trying to get midlife women into the sleep lab and I can tell you it is not trivial because they're very busy, you know, getting of course, somebody yeah. with children and a career and a family and, you know, to come in and sleep overnight multiple times in a sleep mm -hmm. lab is very, very difficult. Um, you can do a lot of online research with them and that's great, um, but it doesn't quite give you the same result because there's usually a big difference between how women report their sleep is and how their actual sleep is. Um, in terms of objective measures. So that becomes quite problematic in terms of really understanding, you know, the relationship between all of the menopausal symptoms um, and sleep. For sure. And I think um, also previously uh, you talked about um, during your uh, presentation about differences on subjective versus objective um, reports of sleep or um Yeah, results on sleep. And I think that was very interesting that you say sometimes also women can report very bad sleep 
well as when you look at it objectively, which you would need, then also you see sometimes a different pattern. And I was wondering if that also then um, holds for menopause. I know it's like, difficult sometimes to assess that, but if you see this too during menopause. Yeah, I haven't, I haven't actually done research like mm -hmm. that, but there are studies that look mm -hmm. at the differences between subjective and objective, and they do see these differences where women seem to have very high rates of reporting bad sleep. But then when you're looking at the actual sleep, you don't really see as you don't really see really big changes across their sleep mm -hmm. that, that it, it match the magnitude. And you see the same effects actually with, you know, cognition. So we, there are studies that, you know, because women, a big complaint during menopause is poor cognition, right? Poor memory, poor attention, just feeling foggy brain. Um, but when you do objective measurements of their cognition, they really don't seem to have such strong changes that, you know, that would be represented by those subjective reports. Um, so that's also interesting is, is Super interesting. why are uh, women more likely to report higher complaints about memory problems, sleep problems, but when you measure them objectively, they don't really seem to have such major issues. Um, are we measuring different things? You know, mm -hmm. and one of, the, one of the things I think is important when you look at the difference between subjective and objective is that there's many different personal factors that can go into somebody saying, I'm not feeling well. Um, and one of the things that, that is prevalent in women that is less so in men is high rates of anxiety and depression. Um, and particularly around menopause, you see increased rates of anxiety and depression. Um, so there's no studies I know of that are really big studies that can really say, if you control for anxiety and depression, do women still have sleep problems? Mm -hmm. um, but there, mm -hmm. I just find one study that I talked about in the talk, which is but it's in gay men, and it shows that if you do control for anxiety and depression in that group, they don't really seem to have such strong relationships with sleep problems. Yeah. Um, but that, I think, really needs to be explored more. Is, sure. is it sleep that's the problem, or is it high sensitivity to negative experiences? Yeah, I guess also for sure there are different um, variables or factors that we have not yet found and not yet accounted for. But I also think that it's super interesting to have at least the possibility of maybe the women, ex um, they report to have worse sleep, worse mood on a subjective level, but then maybe they just compensate very good <laughs> on a, to have it not on the objective perform um, objective cognitive performance, for example. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that is true. So in aging, that's a good um you know, it's a good model for what you're talking about is that people who, you know, are aging, definitely they show deficits, they show changes in their performance. But in people who don't show differences between who in, in older adults who perform at the same level as young adults, what you see is more engagement of brain activity during the same cognitive mm -hmm. tasks. So, yeah. so it's that compensation model, right, of saying that even though you know the majority of older adults may show worse memory over time for the people who do not show worse memory mm -hmm. and are older they're actually recruiting more brain areas to make up for those losses so maybe there are the same effects going on in, with with women that there are these underlying structures that are changing and that women are just really good at you know self-motivating or pushing one part of their um 
you know, approach to thinking about things um, when the other, you know, there's this idea that you have all these different underlying mechanisms that are supporting one cognitive domain versus another cognitive domain. Well, if one starts to perform less well, does this other brain area make up for it, right? And does it mm -hmm. kind of come in and mm -hmm. say, well, let me use a different strategy with this other brain area and try to get it so that the performance stays high. For sure. And I guess that's also why it's so important for us to look at different levels in research. So look at questionnaires and ask how they feel, but then also not forget about objective me measures like um, EEG, like fMRI, and to just capture everything and try to understand what's, what is going on here. And of course, we need studies in animals to understand it maybe at the, at the cellular levels, but then we need studies also in humans to understand what's, what's actually happening there and, and can we have a look at that too. And... I would also like to ask you, in, in this case, are there any protective buffers for women during the menopause for mood or for cognition also as they age? And is there a way that we can consider this window of vulnerability that we always say about as a window of opportunity for them? Yeah, so, I mean, definitely one of the, you know, in looking at what women can do to make sure that they have... Um, a better time during menopause. There's been studies that look at all the different restorative practices and the benefits of increasing in yoga, increasing in meditation, increasing time during um, deep breathing exercises, because what all of those are doing are increasing, going back to the beginning of our conversation, increasing the parasympathetic system um, and decreasing our stress responses. So when we're in a state of high anxiety or, you know, if we're you know, we're in a state of stress or, you know, and that is what people report when they're in menopause. It's like it's very uncomfortable um, and they're stressed because they feel like they're not thinking as well and they're not sleeping as well, so their mood is not very mm -hmm. good. So that can be a, st a state of high stress. And chronically, it can really have debilitating effects. But um, the studies that have done Uh, interventions where women are doing, you know, increases in yoga or any of these kind of systems, what those, the base of all those systems are, are really slowing your breathing down. And the strongest um, signal for your parasympathetic system to basically become more activated is by reducing your respiration rate, is to slow your breathing down, is to reduce the heart rate, right? Because that means I'm fine, you know, mm -hmm. I'm safe. I'm in a place where I'm safe and I can like breathe really slowly mm -hmm. and I'm not stressed. And so, and the studies do bear out mm -hmm. benefits of all of those kind of practices. Um, sometimes when the hot flashes come in the middle of the night, you can't prevent that, right? Mm -hmm. But what you can do, you know, is what you do during the daytime is going to keep your balance between the sympathetic and the parasympathetic and keep you in a more relaxed state and that will have a benefit um, yeah i think this is just beautifully bringing us back again to the power of the downstate <laughs> yeah, and exactly. it really hearing you talk about these things my shoulder drop a little bit <laughs> and i want to take a Please, deep please breath try. so <laughs> maybe everyone should take a deep breath right now yeah. um Yeah, it helps. And also just being aware of that whenever you are um, in whatever phase you are, if it's the menstrual cycle, if it's the menopause, I think these things, of course, they apply to everyone, also to men. But then especially during these periods where it might be a little bit more stressful, you need to make 
you need to just um, apply these techniques and just apply this knowledge. And I think this is just very nice for us to share that then also to make use of that. Um, yes, before we come to our final question, I just want to briefly summarize what we just talked about before. And that is that you um, explained to us a little bit about the up and down states of biorhythms and that we can use them also to optimize our well-being, um, our emotional and cognitive functions, and that they also reflect on different levels too. And the specific biorhythms that we have for women are, if we think, think about that um, on the monthly scale, at least the menstrual cycle. And these hormone fluctuations, they do reflect on some neural levels on some emotional levels too but it might not be very simple not very direct um, that we can say that the menstrual cycle is affecting the mood um, as we sometimes say that it does but that might be more complex with an um, interaction with sleep and besides also that we have these transition phases in women uh, like the menopause and here again um, it might be very complex how this works together but um, hormone fluctuations do influence sleep in some way or the other and this can then affect mood of course too but we can try and make use of this knowledge to our advantage and we can try to live in sync with our biorhythms too um, and that includes the menstrual cycle and the menopause. And we can try to look at that from, an, from a perspective where we can then apply techniques to use, use them, to, to use the power of the downstate to make, make life a little bit more easier in that sense. Oh, that was really impressive. <laughs> <laughs> Beautifully summarized. Thank you. Of course. And thank you for sharing that knowledge. But I would like to ask you, if we take a peek into the future... How would you see us, and especially as women, work with our biorhythms? Mm, that's a really good question. Um, for me, I, I, I think that it would be my, my ideal representation of women would be that, um, you know, I mean, I think about women across the globe um, and how there's different um, cultures that potentially shift um, how women see themselves um, and how much access they have to sort of thinking about empowering themselves around their menstrual cycle. I think that it's not a standard that, you know, maybe in Germany and in the U.S. there's conversations about empowering women around their mm. cycles. Um, but I guess, you know, for me, the future would be that more cultures start um, helping women accept themselves and um, benefiting from understanding that there's a strength to these cycles as opposed to something that they shouldn't be talked about. Or mm. um, So in that way, I think that once you start to have more awareness of the importance of these cycles, then more research will also be done on um, women themselves. And I think that, that that's part of the question is, is why do we know so little about half the population? And mm. I think it really comes from the fact that we just have a general dominance of you know males in science historically but also that women are second-class citizens in much of the world um, and and 
and it's not until we really start seeing women as just being equal to men that we will start to really understand women to the extent that we understand you know, the human animal. We still need to understand mm -hmm. the female animal as well. Um, so that's my vision of the future. But in that way, I think that once we do have more research and we do have more understanding, then I think that we can understand how you know, how is our sleep changing across these cycles? And are there times where we can be increasing our sleep in order to support these different structures? Are there times where we need to have, you know, we didn't talk about exercise. Exercise is incredibly important mm. um, throughout the menstrual cycle is, you know, how, how vulnerable do people get to during the cycle to not wanting to exercise, but needing necessarily, maybe, maybe there are times where we need to push ourselves to exercise more to get a little bit burst of say a little more testosterone in our system right to you know to and and how does the estrogen and the progesterone interact together mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. so there's some interesting times where we have these high levels of estrogen and then there we have another time where we have high levels of progesterone and they seem to sometimes be synergistic and sometimes they seem to be in competition with each mm -hmm. other so are there how does that play out functionally? You know, are there times where we should be eating differently depending on our menstrual cycle? And, you know, so I, I think that becoming, um, I think that the first step is to become more aware and more accepting and more interested and curious about it. And then the second step is to say more research. Um, and then the third step would be, and then what can we do, right? Then what are all the interventions that we can use? Very beautiful. Thank you so much for taking your time. And I think it was an absolutely inspiring conversation and gave us a lot of food for thought. And maybe something can be applied by some of our listeners and just something that we can reflect uh, on and use as the power of our downstates, maybe. Um, if you want to learn or read more of Sarah's work, we will link, of course, her books in the show notes. And last but not least, I would like to thank Nina Röhm, who is here with us in the room and is another PhD candidate of the IATG, who uh, not only contributed to this episode by preparing information and questions, but who is also um, helping us to record this episode with our own IATG podcast equipment. And if you have any feedback, questions or suggestions for specific topics, please let us know and contact us via mail or Twitter. As always, you can find the information in the show notes of this episode and our podcast. I hope you've enjoyed the podcast as much as I did. And we would be happy if you shared it with family, friends or colleagues. And until then, hear you next time on Let's Talk About Women. Mm -hmm.